Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of Finneran's Wake. I am with unwavering commitment to the cause of great conversation, your faithful friend and host, Daniel Finneran. Thank you so very much for joining me today. If, dear friends and viewers and listeners, you find the conversations on this channel enlightening, entertaining, edifying, stimulating to the mind, or nourishing to the soul, please do consider subscribing to this modest little channel of mine. On it, we have a small but growing community of inquisitive minds, among which I can assure you, my friend, yours most certainly belongs. Now, my guest today, with whom I am absolutely honored to be able to spend a little bit of time, is Dean King. Dean is the celebrated author of 10 books, all in the genre of nonfiction, an intrepid explorer and indefatigable researcher. Dean has traveled all over the world to write about subjects ranging from the Sahara Desert, the Hatfields and McCoys, Appalachian America, Patrick O'Brien, the High Seas, and the Long March in China. His latest book, and that on which we'll be spending a little bit of time today, and of which I strongly urge you all to buy yourself a copy, is Guardians of the Valley, John Muir, and the Friendship That Saved Yosemite. If all these fine works don't quite satisfy your appetite for history and adventure, you can find more of Dean's published work in the Daily Telegraph, National Geographic, and the New York Times. And if all that weren't enough, Dean's also involved as a documentarian with Gum Street Productions, a young company in which he's a partner. Dean, thank you so very much for joining me today. It's a pleasure, Daniel. Thanks for having me on. Of course, it's a pleasure and it really truly is all mine. So I want to begin with a brief quotation with which we can most, I think, easily transition into the topic of your latest book. Published in the Yosemite in the year 1912, John Muir, the subject and hero of your most recent book wrote, quote, damn Hetch Hetchy as well damn for water tanks, the people's cathedrals and churches, for no holier temple has ever been consecrated by the heart of man. First of all, uh, to all of us listening, what is Hetch Hetchy? Some might not be familiar with it. And why would its damning be tantamount to an act of sacrilege? Well, Hetch Hetchy is a valley in the northwest corner of Yosemite National Park. And um, that's a great quote to choose because it really does capture uh, John Muir's uh, belief that, that uh, nature was God's temple, his greatest manifestation, and also the place where uh, people could come to find spiritual meaning and fulfillment. Uh, San Francisco needed water. And the, the, the cheapest and easiest way for them to get it was to dam Hetch Hetchy because it had steep uh, uh, stone walls on either side and a very narrow mouth. And because it was a, a part of a national park, if San Francisco could get the federal government to give it to them, they wouldn't have to pay for it. They wouldn't have to uh, condemn any property uh, below or, or fight for other rights. And so um, uh, this would be... Muir's uh, ultimate battle uh, before his death for the last 15 years of his life was to prevent San Francisco from taking 
uh, Hetch Hetchy, damming it up and really um, uh, usurping a, a, a major portion of Yosemite National Park. Right. And he wasn't alone in this effort to uh, preserve Hetch Hetchy from the, let's say, the incursions of the, the state that wanted it dammed and, and wanted its water supply diverted to uh, service the inhabitants of San Francisco. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the the dramatis personae, the other characters involved in this story. Maybe you can touch on John Muir and give us a little bit more background on him and some of his fellow actors in this scene. Sure. Well, I, as I mentioned, this was sort of the culmination of, of the um, you know, great service John Muir would do uh, for the environment, for the environmental movement in uh, the United States. So um, going back in time, you know, Muir was considered, uh, he was, he was a, a nature bard and uh, his editor, a guy named Robert Underwood Johnson at Century Magazine um, would become the guy who uh, turned Muir uh, from simply a, a poet of nature into somebody who actuated his, um, you know, his greatest desires for nature in a way to preserve and protect nature. And uh, to me, this was one of the, the it's one of the greatest writer editor uh, partnerships in the English language. Uh, and it was something I very much wanted to capture in the book because um, I don't think we've ever seen the likes of it before. Uh, and together, they created the Sierra Club. And, uh, and so they had the Sierra Club, uh, that apparatus to help them fight against the city of San Francisco, which had money and power. And it also had, uh, political uh, uh, chits because in 1906, uh, the great earthquake and fire had uh, destroyed San Francisco. And so a battle that they had been losing for the decade before trying to take a piece of the national park suddenly became something that they could achieve because um, people wanted to do something for San Francisco. Still, um, you know, so they, uh, San Francisco was asking Congress to grant them the water rights to Hetch Hetchy and give them the ability to, to go dam it up and, and, um, and, and take that water out. And, and it really was going to, uh, to, to, to take a big piece of the park away. Muir and the Sierra Club argued that, you know, that, the, that Yosemite National Park had been created for, for all people, all Americans and, and all people on Earth, really. It's, it's really a special amazingly beautiful natural site and that it, it shouldn't be taken for any purpose. They also could show that there were other rivers that San Francisco could use and that um, they really didn't need to take a piece of the park. Uh, and for many years, secretaries of the interior and presidents supported Muir and the Sierra Club and Robert Underwood Johnson in, in their efforts to, to preserve uh, that beautiful piece of nature. Um, and, and then, and then once the, the earthquake and fire happened, the tide turned against them. Still a big legal battle. The Sierra Club um, used its grassroots to campaign against San Francisco. So uh, congressmen were getting 5,000 letters on their desks and, you know, each. And, and they had never seen this before. They were like, what is this? What's going on? You know, and it was because Muir and the Sierra Club had... Um, had uh, expanded their their reach ac across the country. It was the first time that that garden clubs and women's clubs and, and faculty groups across the nation were fighting for a piece of nature that wasn't in their backyard. Uh, 
you know, and, and so this was very transformative um, and really created the modern environmental movement. Yeah, and I want to touch on that a little bit more later, because like you said, this movement attracted disparate small groups or large groups all across the nation. And many of these people in these groups had never been out West. They'd never traveled to California. Uh, and really in this time, a time prior to the, the wide distribution of photographs that we enjoy today, they might not even had much of a conception of it beyond the writings of a person, uh, a bard of nature like John Muir, who was able to describe them in such memorable terms. Uh, I want to go back though, very briefly to the, to the unacknowledged partnership that between Mr. Johnson and Muir, maybe you can Tell us a little bit more about uh, Robert Underwood Johnson, who is, uh, I think, by history, or at least American history, largely overlooked. Give us a little bit more detail about him. Why was he an important player in this? Yeah, um, so I, I came to this book originally um, when I went to Yosemite National Park in 1998, took in the view from Inspiration Point and was duly inspired by that magnificent view being uh, an East Coast kid who had been in the Appalachian Mountains. I'd been to Europe more than I'd been to the West. And suddenly the, the scale and scope of the American landscape hit home hard there. And I realized uh, I, I sort of had a new understanding of what America was all about. And so I, I really wanted to explore that and I wanted to write about it. Uh, I started, uh, then, then, I, then I discovered that John Muir was the sort of physical embodiment of that place. And um, I started studying his life and there was a, a lot. He did a lot of amazing things and you could go in many directions to tell his story. What I realized is that he had kind of a sprawling life. He did so many things. He was a bit of a mechanical genius. He was, uh, you know, a, a bit of a scientist. He was an alpinist. Uh, he was a fruit farmer even. And um, and of course, a, a great writer. Um but when I, when I got to his relationship with his editor at Century Magazine um, and, and saw that, that uh, in, in one particular case, especially um, the first time they actually met was in 1889 when Robert Underwood Johnson came from New York City out to California to, to do a, um, finish off a series on the gold rush. And Muir said, look, look, Johnson, you got to come to Yosemite with me. You've been hearing about it for so long. Let, let's go. And Johnson, it didn't take much arm twisting. He, he was glad to go out there with Muir and to be led by, you know, the great God of, of Yosemite Valley. And um, but Muir wanted to show him that it wasn't being kept up. He wanted to show him the magnificence of it, of course. But he was also wanted to show him that that the, the valley was being abused. Um, it was it was under state control. But um, the, 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 the tourism industry was kind of having its way. There were cow pastures and pig pens all over the place. And hotels were going up willy nilly and landscape was getting cut down for for rant sort of randomly. And um, there were garbage heaps and that sort of thing. And uh, Muir also knew that from being a shepherd there in his early years, that the, the sheep up uh, above the valley were denuding the mountainsides. And he knew that sooner or later, um, erosion was going to kill the streams and really it was going to affect the valley and, and ruin it. Um, and so uh, here he had Johnson. Johnson became convinced and, and Johnson said to him around like a campfire when I said, look, listen, Muir, 
uh, we need to do something about this. We need to create Yosemite National Park, as we've been discussing. You write me two articles. I'm going to run them in Century Magazine. Then I'm going to go down to Washington, D.C. and put them on every congressman's desk. We're going to get that bill passed. And, you know, when I when I learned about that um, as a writer myself, uh, I, I was my, my jaw sort of dropped that that just doesn't exist, you know, today. And, and I'm not sure it existed uh, much ever before that um, that that a writer could have that kind of impact on um, on our landscape, on our national you know, uh, legacy and on our future. And so um, this this um, partnership where, you know, there was an artist and writer and then somebody who empowered him, his editor who empowered him. And, and these guys worked together for four decades. So there's a great body of of um, uh, correspondence between them, like they had a conversation going, you know, all that time that, that I could tap into. But at, at one point, I wanted to call the book Mr. Johnson and Mr. Muir when I first started out, because everybody knew Muir, but nobody knew Johnson. And I was so excited about what a dynamic guy this was, um, you know, from and I could tell you about Muir's childhood. He was kind of a special guy from early on. Johnson was as well. He grew up in Centerville, Indiana. And at the age of 11, during the Civil War, he told his parents, hey, the, the uh, station master, the train station master wants me to come work for him and I want to do it. I'm going to go do it. And his parents are, you know, they're like, what? You, you know, you're 11 years old. You don't need to go work. His father's a justice of the peace there. And he said, no, no, I want to do it. So they let him go work at the, the train station. He learned to operate the telegraph machine. And um, there was somebody down the line who sent really fast telegraphs that the older guys couldn't pick up. Uh, Johnson could. You know, at the age of 11, he could pick up what was coming down the line. Turns out the the uh, other telegrapher was a young Thomas Edison who was at another station. So it's, it's Johnson and Edison sending telegraphs back and forth. And, um, and and Johnson would stay at the station late at night because he loved doing it. He was just, you know, um, entranced by the, the fact that these messages could come down the line in the middle of the night and he could take them down and communicate. Um but it was during the Civil War. Sometimes they were very sad messages. He would have to get on a horse and go out and tell a family they'd lost a son. Uh, when Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, it was Johnson who took down the message and went out on the uh, platform and announced it to, to the people there. So he was a precocious guy who was, you know, always in a momentous place. He would uh, go to college, a Mormon college, uh, graduate in a class of four and um, end up in Chicago uh, during the great fire there and it would uh, document that. So kind of like Muir uh, had a knack for being in, in you know, the, the place where the big news was being made and, 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 and being able to, to, to comment on it and be affected by it and be in the sort of heart stream of America. Yeah, to be kind of fortuitously placed in the right time, if you want to use that word. Yeah, I didn't want to say the when, right place at the right time because right. it was disaster. Right, right. They, but, <laughs> but, for someone, but for someone interested in documenting uh, seminal events in the, the history of our nation, yes, he was certainly well-placed by fortune, by God, by someone to, to yeah, be sure. in, these, in these settings. Um, oh, gosh, a couple things on which I want to comment, but maybe, but maybe first... I'd like to contrast Underwood's, uh, Johnson's upbringing to that of 
Muir. So you traveled out to Scotland, as I understand it, to sort of acquaint yourself with um, the the place and the places in which he was reared, and also in Wisconsin, which to which he moved with his family at a young age, uh, and then ultimately where he settled in California. Uh, he was, by and large, um, destitute, let's say, of a proper uh, education. He was able to read Shakespeare and Milton and the Bible sparingly. And I was shocked by that after having read his, the beauty of his, of his prose in his essays, that he, he really didn't have a very well-structured structured formal education until he went to the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and as you noted, he was more renowned locally for his uh, mechanical genius. He was very precocious as well in his attempts to create alarm clocks and certain other household domestic instruments that could assist him in his labors. But very little of his time was devoted to to reading, and it wasn't his decision. He was, you know, raised up in a kind of a strict Calvinistic family, and, and time for the such literary pleasures wasn't wasn't um, abundant. Uh, so, how do you think his life would have changed if he had been brought up in a more structured, um, let's say, educational environment? And that's John Muir. Uh, Muir, I'm, I'm referencing. Yes. Um... Well, um, there was one book that he was quite familiar with, and that was the Bible, which was whipped into him from an early age. He literally memorized the entire New Testament and, and a lot of the Old Testament. Um, he, was, he was a very a bright guy. And early on, um, his grandfather taught him to read and would take him out into nature in Scotland before he came to the United, uh, to the United States. And in Wisconsin, his... Um, his neighbors there realized that he was a very bright guy and that um, that uh, he needed to be reading more than the Bible, the only thing that his father would allow him to bring into the house. Uh, and so they started smuggling him in books. His neighbors realized that he was a very bright kid and that he needed to be reading more than just the Bible. So they started smuggling him in, him in books. And his, his father caught him reading a book one day he, he had to work from dawn to dusk along with his other siblings in in the fields uh it was a very sort of severe um life that his evangelical father imposed upon the family but uh so he caught him reading and and he was he was he was frustrated with john a little bit and he, he finally said look you can read but not on not on my time you know if it's not the bible and uh so uh, you, you're going to have to, you know, as long as you're working in the morning and putting in your day, um, you, you can figure that out. So Muir invented a, a, a machine, um, as you mentioned, using clockwork and um, hinging the, the, the feet of his bed so that the, the clock would pull the uh, legs out from under his bed at 1 a.m. and dump them in a pan of cold water and so that he could get up and read. And he would read until dawn when he had to go out in the field. So um, even though he was an autodidact, he, he, he was very uh, disciplined about it. You know, anybody who's going to wake himself up, you know, in the middle of the night to read is probably pretty driven and getting a lot out of it uh, or, or wouldn't do it. So, um, uh, so he, he, he read extensively. He absorbed that. Um, and, you know, the, the, 
the machines, when I, when I started uh, reading about Muir and then writing about him, and I read about some of the machines he invented, I, you know, I wasn't so sure. They seemed a little strange, but you can go to the University of Wisconsin today and see his desk, which he, um, again, used clockwork. He whittled the entire thing out of wood, and it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, it's a stunning thing to see. Uh, and, you know, and, and here's a college kid who couldn't afford a desk in his room, so he whittled it out of wood. And not only that, uh, applied a clock to it so that uh, the, the desktop rotated. It was circular, rotated so that um, a book would stay there for 15 minutes and then move to the next one so he could stay on a study schedule. It's really pretty stunning and, and not a bit odd, you know, uh, more, more than a bit odd. I mean, he, you know, so um, his room was uh, a, a kind of a freak show at the University of Wisconsin. Kids would come from all over to, to look and see what this you know, crazy kid from the farm had invented or what kind of um, uh, specimen he brought in from the woods because he, you know, he went out and found, uh, he was he was fascinated by nature and collected all kinds of, you know, uh, items to keep in his room. And he became kind of a celebrity on campus, um, even even with the professors who realized that, you know, he, he had this, um, you know, he was farm farm raised and had this sort of uh, uh, country um, diction with a Scottish brogue and uh, but he was very well read. And so um, they were fascinated by him uh, and and, and they, they, they took special notice and, and worked with him. And so I think although he's only at the university for two years because he didn't have enough money to stay in, uni in, in the university, he had to go teach. And then he worked in a factory. Um, he, he absorbed whatever he read very thoroughly. Yeah. And if you're unable to go to Wisconsin and to the university at Madison and actually for yourself, see these, these objects and these instruments, uh, you can do as I did and get his selected writings from the library of America. They have a fine volume and in interspersed through the writings, you'll see sketches I think they're from his hand, original mm -hmm. sketches of these devices. And just as you depicted, they're all eccentric. They're all extraordinary, much like the man himself, um, but all, all serving a, a very specific end. Uh, and I, I'm always just so impressed by people who are um, so disciplined and driven to enhance their own um, intellect as he was. Now, obviously, he was gifted with with some shrewdness and some, some wit. He was not an unintelligent person by nature. But the thought that he took advantage of his father's uh, strict dictate not to read during working hours to, to rouse himself in what were probably chilly Wisconsin <laughs> evenings or early mornings at 1 a.m. into cold water, can you imagine? <laughs> and, and just begin his cycle of reading and reading a somewhat limited amount of books. Today, we take for granted the fact that we can purchase any book on Amazon, like your fine book, and have it delivered mm -hmm. to our house in two days, or to go to the local library and check it out and have it for a week. But that wasn't quite as accessible in his age. Um, so I'm just, I'm so astonished by, by people like him. And you read, later on, you read the beauty of his prose, as I mentioned earlier, um, and the mastery um, of his of his language, and you're just struck by the fact that this is a man who kind of like cobbled together his own education by and large, was totally self-driven to 
to to form his mind and to cultivate it to the best of his ability and to put forth uh, everlasting evergreen works that still resonate with us so much today so he's a he's a great inspiration on on different on different people and for different reasons, those who are ambitious to improve their, their understanding and their intellects, those who are simply um, enamored of nature uh, and, you know, those who, who want to pursue advocacy and activism. So in all these ways, he's, he's still so incredibly influential. Uh, I, I want to ask on the point of influence, deviating a little bit from Muir, do you think that there's been in the history of America any other author who has had so much influence um, on policymaking, on the culture, on um, um, just the general uh, idea and understanding of America? Can you think of anybody else? Well, yeah, I, I think people like um, Emerson and Twain, you know, both of his era um, and, and Thoreau and, you know, there, there are others who've had a, a great influence um, in, in the manner that Muir did. I, I, I can't think of anybody who, um, you know, could meet with his editor, come up with an idea and then write an article and delineate the, the area that he thought needed to be turned into a national park and have that made. The, the two of them would go on to be very influential in the creation of our national uh, forestry service and in our, and, preserving of, of what would become our national forest land. Um, uh, the creation of the Sierra Club, you know, is the most powerful um, environmental organization of its day and, and perhaps of all times uh, was, uh, you know, an astounding accomplishment uh, as well. Um, and the, the, the influence they had on President Theodore Roosevelt, um, our greatest um, uh, political um environmental activist, uh, you know, was profound. So, um, it, it would be, it would be hard to, you know, you could make a case that, that, that there's never been anybody quite like this. Yeah. And I think my favorite image in your book is that of, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, uh, accompanied by John Muir uh, out, out in Yosemite during his, during his visit there. It's a striking image to see these two iconic men together. You did mention, and I was hoping you would, Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, so you mentioned in the book uh, the beautiful friendship that was forged between these two men. Uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson, of course, the great New England transcendentalist, and John Muir, the, the great environmentalist. Uh, now, Emerson uh, was three decades Muir's elder, uh, but he was similarly apt to divinize nature and to write in this very... Um, exalted way when thinking about the natural world. Uh, when recounting his experience with Emerson and the, the party mm. <laughs> by which he was being led about, uh, Muir accused it of having been full of indoor philosophy. I just love that, that term. <laughs> so if you can describe to us, please tell us, what is indoor philosophy and how does it contrast to Muir's understanding of an outdoor philosophy? Um, well, Emerson came out with his entourage in 1871 to uh, Yosemite, and um, Jean Carr, the wife of one of Muir's professors at Madison, who had um, moved out to, to California when, when Ezra Carr, her husband, became a professor at Berkeley, 
um, and who was Gene Carr, a real soulmate of Muir's. Now, Ezra had had introduced Muir to uh, Emerson and to um, uh, keeping a journal and, and you know, helps form, you know, some of Muir's uh, uh, habits and, and thoughts. But but Ezra, I, I'm, so, I'm sorry, Gene, uh, be- really became a soulmate. They really bonded over their love of nature and um, would would uh, walk together in in um, in Gene. Uh, recognized Muir's brilliance and would send um, any intellectuals who came out to to Berkeley uh, out to see Muir in Yosemite. You know, she she would say, "You've got to go out there." And and people were making pilgrimages to to get to Yosemite. Um, and uh, and when you get there, you've got to have the best guide out there. It's John Muir. One of these people was Emerson, and so um, Emerson got out there and. And uh, Muir was too shy, though. Uh, Gene Carr had sent him a note saying, hey, this Emerson's coming out there and I've told him he needs to meet you and you need to go meet him. And he 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 wouldn't penetrate the entourage and all the hoopla that was going on. Um, you know, and you, you got to remember Muir was living out a, a pretty wild life in Yosemite. And so when these city folk from the northeast came out, um, you know, maybe it was a little nerve wracking for him. But um he eventually, when he found out that Emerson was going to leave, he knew he had to make his movie, sent Emerson a note. Emerson responded and the two of them got together and Emerson quickly, you know, uh, understood what a special guy Muir was. And uh, Muir was living that life out in nature that Emerson um, wrote about and, and um, you know, uh, upheld, but, but Muir was actually doing it. So the, the indoor philosophy, you know, here in uh, in Emerson was, you know, past the peak of his powers. He was beginning to to start to, you know, he was he was older, and he was he was beginning to to become, you know, um, somewhat feeble. And so th- his entourage was very protective of him, as as you would imagine. But um, but Muir couldn't understand it. You know, they wanted uh, Emerson to sleep indoors, and and Muir is like said, you you know, that's that's ridiculous. Nobody ever caught a cold in the woods. You know, um, you're you, you got a lot more chance of uh, getting sick in that stuffy um, boarding house that you're staying in than than staying out in the woods with me. So uh, he was sort of perplexed by the whole thing and frustrated. He he really wanted to take uh, Emerson, who had influenced him so much and who he admired so much, out into the woods and 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 bond with him. But um, and Emerson understood that and wanted to do it, but really couldn't escape his his people. Yeah, and I think it's an example, perhaps a disheartening one, of not meeting one's idols. <laughs> and, and and sadly, um, it wasn't an altogether bad experience for for Muir as he as he recounts in his works, but it certainly, I think, failed to live up to his expectations of what he might uh, achieve or what he might be able to exchange with with Emerson. Uh, let me ask you. If you were to be approached by some uh, celebrated figure and and asked to be led around any f- place with which you're intimately familiar, uh, who would that figure be? Can you think of anyone? <laughs> um, that's a great question. Uh, well, I mean, since I just spent five years studying Muir and, and Johnson, I, I, nothing, you know, to be with the two of them together 
would have been amazing to be with them together in Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite, you know, um, and exploring that with them would have been, you know, mind boggling, you know, and, and something I would have loved. Um, I have, I have a wide range of, of interests and, um, you know, I would have loved to have spent some time with Doc Watson, the famous um, guitar player and singer who's an idol of mine. And I wanted to write a biography of him, but um, unfortunately he, he passed away a few years back. And um, uh, Abraham Lincoln, all, all men, men, there are many, many um, uh, people that would just be fascinating to, to be with and to ask a few questions of why you did this or why you didn't do, you know, do that. Of, of Bureau, I, I would ask him, look, why didn't you just make that trip out to Washington, D.C. during the battle for Hetch Hetchy? Because that would have been your movie moment. You know, that would have been it right there. You on the floor. It would have it w- would have been game changing, I think. And um, but but it was something he consistently he would travel um, to go explore the world, to go find trees in remote places. But he really didn't like being in the bright lights. He didn't like, you know, um, uh, making, uh, uh, you know, political statements that that weren't on paper, you know. Um, and so uh, when, when the eventual um, battles on the uh, floor of Congress came about, his opinions would be introduced um, through his writings. But, um, you know, that that's all, all fun to speculate on. Um, but I would I would say, though, that um, while while Muir's you know, greatest hopes of what he might do with Emerson, you know, to, to have conversations out in the woods and, and, and enjoy the, you know, starry nights and, and Muir loved to light a, a dead tree that still had sap in it and watch the flames, you know, he, and, and th- you know, the spectacles in nature, all, all kinds of things. I think he did learn a lot. Um, he learned a lot about himself and, um, I, I love the, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking that moment where Emerson departs and, and is looking back at him and you realize it is almost like this, you know, unrequited platonic love that, that could have happened there. But, but, and Muir's sad, you know, Muir's never, he's alone a lot in the woods and he's never sad. And that always amazed me. Um, you know, um, he's never scared or, 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 you know, depressed being alone because, he feels fulfilled in the woods, but the moment that Emerson leaves him and, and he doesn't um, have that 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 moment uh, uh, with with Emerson, he feels alone, and he has to grapple with it. All of a sudden, he he has to sit there and get back in touch with himself and with nature. Hear the birds, um, light his campfire, and and um, you know gain his peace back. And uh, and then and then he grapples with, you know, Emerson wanted him to come out to, to Harvard in, in in lecture there. And so he had to grapple with that. You know, when your idol asks you to come, you, you know, to the to the you know, hallowed halls of, of Harvard and in and lecture, that's a great honor. But but Muir knew that what made him special, I think, was that he lived this life of spirituality, you know, that. Um, that others might profess, but weren't living. Emerson, you know, had these lofty ideals and um, wonderful um, uh, realization of, of, of the, the value and beauty and splendor of nature, but he didn't live it the way Muir did. And, and I think that's what Emerson admired in Muir. And what Muir came to understand about himself was that, that that's the gift he brought.
So you you preempted the question that I was going to pose, and that's fine. And you answered it eloquently and beautifully. And that was, you know, what sort of questions might you pose to uh, John Muir if if you had the opportunity? And I think that's uh, that's a that's an excellent one to pose. Um, I want to mention between Emerson, uh, the theoretician, uh, and Muir, the the one who lived the experiences. I suppose we can place. Henry David Thoreau as something of an intermediary. <laughs> he mm-hmm. he certainly um, wasn't as I think a, accomplished a writer as uh, as an Emerson, but he did go out to Walden Pond and he built his own little you know inhabitation there. Although he wasn't too far away from civilization, mm-hmm. uh, but he still, in many ways, enacted that life about which Emerson solely uh, wrote. And, and I think Muir took it to another degree and he really immersed himself in nature more thoroughly. So I detect like a little bit of a lineage and maybe it's chronological as well. There's Emerson, sort of the elder sage-like um, philosopher of nature. And then you have Emerson, his his first acolyte, mm-hmm. <laughs> also in the, in the New England area, who was able to, in some ways, moderate ways, enact some of that philosophy and also to expand on it. And then you have Muir, who's the sort of the West Coast, um, I don't know, avant-garde type of <laughs> real true rough liver of that philosophy. Um, a practitioner as well, but also one who who really truly um, made it a part of his everyday life physically. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's, that's like really an interesting lineage to draw. And of course, I encourage everyone, if uh, you haven't read Emerson, if you haven't read Thoreau, and Muir as, as well, pick up their books and and read them either prior to Dean's book or even you know afterward or, or supplement them read them simultaneously because it's just this just wonderful um, aggregation of, of beautiful prose and deep profound insights that will really fill you up with with uh, with a, a, a love of nature that you probably didn't realize was in you now I find that I take great enjoyment in being out in nature. Uh, and I think most people do. Uh, was that enough for him? Uh, I mean, of course, you described so beautifully the the feeling of sadness that overcame him when he was uh, distanced from Emerson for, with between whom he had, a, you know, that unrequited platonic love. But do you think that nature alone sufficed for a man like Muir? And do you think it suffices for many of us? Well, I think nature is, um, you know, a, a piece of, of the, the pie or the puzzle. Um, and even for Muir, you know, Muir uh, would eventually always come back to quote unquote civilization or sit the city or, or other other folks he he married he um he had two daughters that he doted on and loved and had a a wonderful family life um he he worked on uh his um his wife's family's fruit ranch and eventually uh took over the running of it um and and so he he did have a very rich life both in nature i mean he had an ability to to go out to take a loaf of bread and maybe a, a jar of meat juice and some tea or coffee and go out for five days climbing and exploring a remote part of Yosemite, you know, virtually on, on nothing with no, you know, 
no bed, no tent. He, he, he could, so he did amazing things in, you know, out in nature, but you know, he, he, he read always and, and loved to read. And, you know, before Emerson Thoreau, there was uh, the Bible and Burns and, and Alexander von Humboldt had a big influence on him. So you're right that he did. Um, uh, he, he drew from all these places. And, you know, uh, when I first started thinking about doing a book about um, John Muir, I read Lenny Marsh Wolf's Pulitzer Prize winning biography. And um, it was both enlightening and, and fun and also discouraging because Muir had this sprawling life. He was so good at so many things, but he was kind of the second or third best at a lot of them. And so I, I, I had to think, you know, what's, what's great about Muir? Why, why are we, um, why do we need to remember him? What did he do that was so special? And, and I, and I, I realized that um, I needed to cut a narrative through, you know, the, 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 the Wolf biography um, takes you all over the world to Alaska with Muir. And, um, and, and what I realized I needed to do was find the clean narrative arc that described what Muir did that was so phenomenal. And, and so I found what, what he did best. And I, I really think what he brought was this passion for the wilderness. And so while, you know, his, his idea that all things um, are connected uh, probably initially came from von Humboldt and then a little bit through Emerson, he made that phrase more famous and more well-known through his passion and writing um, and, and the spiritual element, I think, that he, he brought to it because it was very deeply um, ingrained in him, the spirituality, even though his father had been so tough and so severe in his um, religious beliefs, um, it didn't it didn't turn um, Muir off from the basic that basic um, faith that he had, but he had to find out his own version of it, and that was in his relationship with nature, and that you know what the the that that nature was the greatest manifestation of the God he worshipped, and where uh, people uh, needed to come to to find their uh, spiritual fulfillment. So, uh, you know, we, we might tend to think that the Sierra Club was created to protect nature. It wasn't. The Sierra Club was created to bring people to nature. And that's what Muir's whole ethos was, was he didn't want to keep people out of nature. He didn't believe in pristine, you know, nature. He wanted to bring people to nature. Um, and he always wanted to do something good for humanity from the time he was a kid. And he had um, wonderful powers. He knew that he, he considered I could be a man of the cloth. I could work uh, in, uh, in manufacturing. He understood that nature brought us, you know, physical things that made our physical lives um, uh, better. And that, you know, he worked in a, a factory that made broom uh, handles and shovel handles. And, and, and he, he would actually go in and look at the machinery and after about a week say, hey, we need to redo this whole thing. He would re, retool the, the production line and it would produce twice as fast. But, um, but I think the fact that I, I, I love that discovery that, um, that the, the, the factory work and the manufacturing, he also inv uh, you know, valued. But at the time, you got to remember, he, he lived 
from the Civil War to World War One, this was the age of industrialization. It was Reconstruction. It was the time of the Transcontinental Railroad coming together. And America was about growing economically and achieving uh, power, might, and riches. There wasn't anybody else saying, hey, we need to save nature uh, for other things, for our, our spiritual growth and for recreation and, and, and peace of mind. Um, and so that, that's what he did that I think was truly extraordinary. We're living in an age in which the sense of the numinous, the sense of the transcendent about which Emerson and Muir write, wrote so eloquently is, is waning. Do you think that a reintroduction to nature can perhaps be a remedy to that waning feeling in our modern culture and society? I do. I, th I think a lot of people um, uh, find solace in nature, and you can see um, that that the, our national parks are are overwhelmed currently, um, and and an, an issue we need to to grapple with. But um, you know, um, we're we're going through a, a maybe a, a, pr a pretty tough time. I think everybody can feel that, and and um, I I do think that you know, with the planet uh, threatened the way it is that, you know, getting back to nature, maybe stripping down our lives to a certain extent uh, um, will bring us closer to nature. And uh, there again, that that's what an, another thing that, that Muir tried to achieve through the Sierra Club and other means uh, was when he brought people to nature, he had full faith that they would come to nature, love nature and protect nature. So if those things are happening today, um, and I think they still are happening um, frequently, um, maybe our polarization has gotten in the way of our appreciation for the, 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 the more um, powerful and meaningful things in life. Um, I think there's a, you know, a certain um, materialistic uh, bent we have now that, that hopefully maybe will, um, you know, um, be calmed at, at some point. Um, but, but so I, I do think, um, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to write this book is because I think he is a, an exemplar of, of the, the man who found or the person who found meaning in nature and really didn't need much else. He would go out, uh, the, my favorite scenes are when he'll go out, you know, into the mountains and it'll start snowing and all of a sudden there'll be a blizzard and you'll be like, oh my gosh, is he going to survive this? And He'll build a lean-to, go into the lean-to, and a bird will fly in, and he'll be feeding it, you know, crumbs of his bread, taking care of the bird. And in the morning, he'll go out and look at the, you know, the bear tracks and the deer tracks, and and um, uh, and then and then uh, catch snow crystals on his hand and look at the crystals and describe those. So, um, I, you know, in his his feats of exploration um, on foot climbing in the Sierra Nevada and um, up to, up, you know, the, the, the peaks of the Sierra Nevada and, and all around um, are, are inspiring. And I, so that's one thing that I, I hope people discover in the book is the, the beauty of, of the life he led, the, the meaning that he found. And I think a lot of people will connect with that. Oh, they certainly will. And I can say that confidently because I'm one of said people who connected with that. Again, it was through your book, that I was inspired to go back and read Muir's work in the original. 
and uh, was completely uplifted by it and completely moved by it. Um, I do think that there is something profoundly uh, almost ineffable about about nature, being in nature and, and the way in which it makes you feel. And I think uh, by and large, our distance from nature um, is a great detriment to us, to us all collectively. Uh, and I think only if we were to spend a little bit more time outside <laughs> with the sunlight on our skin, uh, feeling the breeze through our hair, feeling the grass uh, beneath our feet, we would find that much of our daily stresses are, if not completely eradicated, then at least significantly diminished. Um, so that's my little pitch for just going outside. And it doesn't have to be in the Hetch Hetchy. It doesn't have to be on top of you know, some great mountain overlooking a, a beautiful valley below. But finding yourself a little patch of earth uh, on which you can connect with things greater than yourself. I know that you're a very active man, Dean. Is there any specific practice that you implement in your day? Do you, for instance, go outside and sit down and meditate? Do you think a certain thought when you're outside? Or do you just sort of go about and, um, you know, I don't know, um, maybe go about somewhat thoughtlessly? I, I tend to think that's not the case with you. But do you have a, a specific practice to which you adhere every day? Well, I think we all have our, our rituals um, that that keep us balanced, and um, because uh, I do what I do, I, I'm you know writing, I'm reading and writing and contemplating you know notions. I I live with Muir for five years, you know, uh, thinking about his writing, and um, so I have my routines, and you know, partly with with my dog, we do our you know certain things, and we go outside together, and. And I know where my dog's going to go. And it's almost, a, you know, it's a wonderful relationship. Walk the dog every day and physical activities. I like to um, I like to work out and feel my my body. And, and I think at the same time, you know, you're, if you're running, you're feeling the road. If you're riding a bike, you know, whatever you're, doing, you're interacting. I mean, we are part of nature. You know, um, we're, we're animals. And so I think being physical has always meant a lot to me. And, um, and so, uh, in pushing myself and, in seeing what my body can take and, you know, whether it's, um, I do a lot of cross country walking, I guess that would be the other thing is I, I love to do end to end walking. I've walked across England twice. I've walked the Welsh border. I've, you know, walked a, a, a good bit of, uh, over, uh, you know, across France and various places in the, in the, um, in the U S. Um, so, um, whenever possible, you know, I get out. I, I think even, even, you know, um, even dry when, when my wife and I like to drive across country a lot, we, um, we put our GPS on no highways and no tolls, you know, and, and get on just that little acts like that getting and, and again, that's, that's being in human nature and seeing little towns and, and it's so much fascinating. There's not, um, there's not a boring road you know, when you're not on a highway, they're all fascinating. And so I think it's connecting and noticing. And, and I would say, um, uh, with, with Muir, um, Muir had the, the, the mind of an engineer, you know, when he was building those machines and fixing factory lines, he's keenly observant and, uh, and has the ability to slow himself down and be present. And that's something I learned, um, a lot, uh, uh, from reading Muir, um, and, and trying to incorporate, you know, in my own life 
and and also in in reading his prose is if I if I was trying to uh, you know read through a book really fast to accomplish something to get somewhere. I would not enjoy it and I wouldn't take much out of it. I had to slow down to his pace. And when I did, the writing's absolutely spectacular. And as you were saying, Muir could find beauty in nature in, in a flower, uh, you know, in a factory yard or in a weed in, in the factory yard or in an ant in a, the tiniest thing. And, you know, which takes us to that, that his most famous quote, I'm paraphrasing, you know, all things are connected. The, the, the biggest mountains connected to the littlest blade of grass. And, you know, he understood that way back when. It's something now that we really, you know, need to understand is that the way we, we care for, you know, any, any bit of nature um, is important. Every bit of nature, you know, particularly as, the, you know, our, our, the, the human population has grown. We all need to be very mindful of, of how we understand and, and treat, treat the natural world. Yeah, it's reminiscent of William Blake's uh, famous, the famous introduction to William Blake's poem. I think it's Auguries of Innocence. And he says, to see the world in a grain of sand and heaven in a wildflower. To take these minuscule parts of nature, almost invisible to the undiscerning eye or to the typical eye. <laughs> and to really appreciate the grandeur in them, the fact that there is this, uh, this, I don't know, inscrutable connection between all things. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's something that really resonates with me as something of a fan of the romantics and uh, their progeny, people like Emerson, Thoreau, and, and Muir. Uh, and it, it always strikes me as just being profoundly moving and beautiful. Uh, and I think it does to many people. Mm -hmm as well. Now, changing directions just slightly. <laughs> In late July of 2020, at the fevered height of our national convulsion, uh, Michael Brune, the executive director of the Sierra Club, circulated a memo entitled Pulling Down Our Monuments. In it, he takes the club's venerated founder and the subject of your book, John Muir, to task uh, the two crimes of which Brune accuses Muir are maintaining friendships with people who subscribe to the pseudoscientific theory of eugenics and making derogatory comments about black and indigenous people. Now, in preparation for this conversation and inspired by your works, I, I've read uh, all of Muir's writings. And I can say, frankly, um, his comments about black and indigenous peoples are surprisingly tame. And I don't mean to sound insensitive when I say that, but having read a lot of literature uh, through many different ages, I can say that there is, there is much worse than that you can find. Um, now you acknowledge the, the controversy surrounding Muir in, in your book, I think in the, um, maybe in the preface. Um, can you maybe comment on that a little bit? You can be honest. Do you think that it's a little overblown? Do you think that Brune was incorrect in circulating this memo. Um, can we restore Muir to you know, universal adoration or do we still need to look more penetratingly at his comments and um, castigate him for them? You know, it's um, a complex issue. And um, I think, I, I do think Brune was... Uh, misguided sadly misguided i think that um 
what he wanted to do was correct the course that the Sierra Club was taking. And the easiest path for him to do that was to go back to the founder and sort of uh, shake the foundation of the organization. Um, I think he I think he was doing it um, for good reasons, but I don't think it was uh, historically accurate or fair to Muir. And, um, you know, I, I do think it's important for us to reexamine all our historical figures, you know, and, and continue to look at them. Um, I, uh, I'm not a big fan of monuments. I think you put up monuments and all of a sudden you, you crystallize something. It's no longer living and alive. And in all my histories that I've written, that's, I'm trying to tear down those monuments. I'm trying to make the people real again. So, um, I, I wouldn't say Muir is, was perfect. Um, but I do think, um, that, he certainly racism certainly wasn't something he ascribed to um, or believed in. Um, you know, uh, eugenics is not, never a word he ever mentioned. You know, in uh, the 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 treatise that somebody who he was associated with, who was a very prominent um, uh, cultural figure in New York City, wrote uh, he didn't write until after Muir had, had passed away. So. Um, so I, I think that is that was really smearing to 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 uh, ascribe, you know, the uh, the 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 thoughts of friends to, you know, um, particularly when you're um, in this intellectual circle uh, of people who are very strong minded and have very different ideas when when you're never never suggested that he believed in anything like um, some of these ideas. Um, so I, I think that I think that was very unfair. I also think that um, if you if you read Muir carefully, um, that you will see that he admired Native Americans, uh, and particularly, and he talked about uh, the the um, their light impact on nature, their ability to live more harmoniously with nature. And he uh, he castigated white people who were tearing nature down. Um, so, you, you know, Muir could uh, Muir did not mince words. And so, you know, he would say what he thought. But he would also um, because he was an engineer and he, he, he describes when you read his writings, he describes so beautifully and meticulously many things. You know, at one point he's criticized for saying that a, a group of Native Americans were dirty. Well, he, he meant they were physically dirty. They had dirt, you know. And they'd been degraded. He, he, I think he called them degraded. They'd been degraded by white people who had taken their land. And, you know, so I think some of this was out of context. Um, early on in his life, when he, when he walked the thousand mile walk to um, the Gulf and he encountered some black people, I don't think he had encountered many black people in his life before that. And, um, you know, he's, he's pretty um, bald in his descriptions. And I think, you know, um, they can, uh, not read great today. And I, you know, but, but again, I think you're really taking, uh, taking this out of context because I don't think anything that he wrote was meant maliciously. Um, and I think he was a very, he, he, he was a champion of the, of the, um, poor and the weak and the, and the downtrodden, um, you know, and people who were dealt with unfairly, um, you know, from, from the beginning, from his family, uh, once he left home, 
he left his siblings behind who still had their, their tyrannical father. And he constantly wrote them and sent his siblings and sent them money and supported them and tried to get them out of the house and help them. He understood what it was meant to be oppressed. And, you know, I, I guess you, that, that question about another thing that, um, you know, if I could be with me or what I would ask him, like, why didn't you go to DC? That would have been that great moment. Another, I, I do wish because he was such a, an intelligent and aware, you know, uh, alert person, I do wish he had come out and said something about the indigenous people. I think he was, you have to remember, he's so focused on fighting for nature in a world that was all around him. You had um, timber mills tearing down 3,000 year old sequoias and, you know, um, and, and there was nobody else uh, trying to protect them. So he had very clear battle lines. You know, he had a big battle he was fighting. It was to preserve nature from from America in, in a lot of ways. So um, it, it's it's almost too much to ask him to have fought other battles. But boy, you know, it would have been nice if he'd made a good, strong statement. Um, th though he did say, you know, all people. He did say at various points, all people are equal. All people are, are you know. Um, are, are, are part of God and we're put here by God. And, you know, and, and so um, I think it's there. Um, and, and, and so I do think what, what happened with Michael Brin was, was very unfortunate and there was a backlash and Brin resigned. And um, yet the, that, um, you know, uh, what he said still lingers a bit. Yeah. And I thank you for that elucidation. I think it was very clear sighted and very even handed. I agree having not known much about Brun prior to his statement, I can say that it was on the whole misbegotten. And it required me only to, to read Muir's writings to realize the, the, the erroneous crimes, so to speak, attributed to him. One being, of course, mere association or friendship with other people who ascribe to the, the theory of eugenics. So if you're culpable for your friend's thoughts, then I don't know how we, any, how anyone remains guiltless in this world. Um, and also, like you said, of the, the or, you know, the, the, the supposed racism. Uh, I just want to, I took down two quotes and I just want to, to read them for all, everyone to understand exactly how uh, Muir thought. In reference to an indigenous woman he encountered in the Sierra, uh, he says, quote, from no point of view that I have found are such debased fellow beings, Indians or natives, a whit more natural than the glaring tailored tourists we saw that frightened the birds and squirrels. So in other words, um, he kind of holds humanity in its entirety uh, to a certain level of um, opprobrium. <laughs> now, mm -hmm. of course, he, he loves humanity, um, but he's critical of humanity universally. And I found that trend repeated in his works. It's not as though he's pointing to the Native American woman specifically, the indigenous woman, and saying that that she is failing nature and that she's uncleanly and you know he wishes that like the animals that he sees about him, he she could be as clean and hygienic as them. Daniel, if I may. Yeah. Um, but you have to you have to see the context of everything that Muir has said um, before. Um, about Native Americans and how much they are closer to nature to understand that the key word there is the debased. Who debased mm. this woman? Uh, it, it was the white settlers who came out and ran them off their land. You know, and, and Muir didn't do that. Uh, Yosemite uh, Valley in that area had been, had been cleared. You know, Native Americans had been removed during the gold rush. 
you know, in uh, um, in the in the early 1850s, uh, almost two decades before Muir came there. Um, so again, you know, while he might have fought that battle and said, hey, maybe we should, you know, they should have access to this land, but they they did. There were still um, Native Americans there, as as this woman that he saw. Um, he instead was fighting against the can, you know, the destruction of all the land by the white people. But yeah. um, so that so you have to know the context to know how to read that passage. And I'm not saying you didn't read it correctly, but but I think a lot of people would miss out on on the fact that he's saying this debased woman is is not as natural as they were. Right, 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 right. Thank you for contextualizing that a little bit more thoroughly. You're absolutely right in having done so. Um, I suppose the only point that I was making, and it's on Muir's behalf, it's, it's, it's that um, he was such, he was so enamored of nature that he saw, um, you know, any desecration of it or any sort of deviation from it as, as just that, uh, whether it came from the white civilized man or the the brown, you know, brown-skinned, uncivilized person. Um, but no, thank you for for filling that picture out a little bit better, um, because I think that's necessary. Um, I think I want to end with maybe just one more question. And you've been extraordinarily generous with your time. Um, if John Muir were alive today, whom would he be? Do you think he'd be the same person? Would he be? Uh, like a survivor man? Would he be less Stroud? Do you think he'd be carrying around a, a recorder and filming himself as he went about his day and sort of vlogging about it? Uh, do you think he'd be a podcast host? Would he be an off-the-grid blogger, uh, an advocate, an activist, a political leader? If he were alive in 2023, what sort of role do you think he would occupy? I'm trying to think of, of uh, you know, uh, somebody today that um um I, I think he would be like the the um young scandinavian woman whose name is escaping me right now who's oh, you Greta, know, Greta, Greta Thunberg yeah yeah uh -huh. I think I think she would probably be she's the current embodiment of Muir you know he would be that that voice out there um maybe you know because the situation's different he would be calling attention to nature and the beauty of nature and the um the threats to nature in the way that she is um and uh uh that that would you know be be the greatest parallel there of course there were you know he was trying to bring people to those parks he couldn't have anticipated you know maybe the population boom and how now we have millions of people going to Yosemite, but 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 he knew. I mean, early on, he was saying we we're going to need that Hetch Hetchy Valley. It was it was very similar to Yosemite Valley. It's now under two hundred feet of water, but he knew that um, we were going to need that remote place for people to go have the experiences that he had. He you know whether or not you know cutting five million people a year you know down to two and a half million in each place would would whether it would really dent the that effect i don't know but um i do love when when i speak um and you know and i talk about my research i was there in yosemite valley last october and i have a gorgeous photograph where i'm on the valley floor it's sunset and the light is hitting half dome in just the perfect way to light up the dome and, I, and, I, and my wife takes a photograph and there's not another soul in that image of the valley floor. You can find your your moments of peace and solace there. Even today, um, I, we went and found the bull tree. We It's in Sequoia National Forest. 
we drove three miles down dirt roads, hiked in a mile and a half, and we sat with the largest remaining giant sequoia in what was called the Converse Basin in the Sequoia National Forest for over an hour by ourselves and never saw another soul. So, um, you know, if you if you go and, and are willing and able to get off the beaten path, you can still find great moments of, of solitude and peace and, and that sort of spiritual fulfillment that Muir wanted us to have. But, um, you know, um, what his solution to this overcrowding would have been, I'm not really, I, I don't know. I think he would have pointed out that, you know, hey, there are a lot of beautiful places around. There, there are gorgeous places in state parks, many other national parks, um, national monuments in your own backyard, you know, in the park in your city. Um, you can find these wonderful places. Um, so uh, it's a great question. Great thing to think about. Thank you. And you, you may not have seen another soul on that gorgeous evening or the, the, the sunrise of the next but I think you almost certainly felt another soul and that was the collective soul of, or maybe even the individual souls collected of the trees and the bushes and the grass. And I can tell that you probably have that ability almost intangibly to sense the spirit that's all around you and that permeates all of nature. And you mentioned the beauty and I want to hover on that for our last question. Uh, Muir was of the conviction that quote, everybody needs beauty as well as bread in issuing his opinion. Thus, he was in some ways paraphrasing one of the New Testament's famous lines located in Matthew uh, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. So what thinkest thou, Dean? Do we need beauty as well as bread or will bread alone suffice? I think you're, as you just pointed out, said it said it wonderfully, and and I think you know it is where ultimately where we find meaning in life, and you know whether it's in nature, or it's in music, or uh, visual arts, or dance, or you know, you know, so many ways combined with with our whatever spirituality we um, um, have, I think. Um, these are great ways to help us interpret the, the world and our experience and to take joy in it and to, to use our senses to appreciate life, you know, in the moment. Uh, and, and it's so important, to, particularly when, you know, we're going through an era of isolation and um, experiencing many things on screens. And, you know, um, not that I don't love things on screens, but you need a balance. Um, and, and, you know, I, I love Muir when he, when, when they, um, when they proposed the national forest and um, Congress had to approve it and Muir wrote a story to, to um, give to the people in Atlantic Monthly um, to, to tell them, look, we need to do this. Uh, he described the trees as being alive and he talked about their, their motion and their, you know, and this is pretty, you know, I think we understand today much better um, how, how living uh, plants speak, they speak to each other, they communicate, they do all kinds of things we never, never could have fathomed. But, but Muir, I think, really understood the lives uh, of these things. And I think, you know, when, I, when a giant sequoia 3,000 years old was, was cut down, um, um, 
he understood the 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 power of that moment, the sadness, the tragedy of it, um, in in the 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 just the 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 sort of holy beauty um, in well everything from the blade of grass to the tree, but the tree you can't you know three thousand year old tree you can't replace. So um, yeah, I think I think this ultimately um, is about uh, the beauty that we we find in in life and. Muir found it especially um, in the, in in nature, especially in Yosemite Valley, uh, which which he believed was a natural cathedral. Yeah, a, a cathedral in which we are all welcome, regardless of our religious belief or our you know ethnic ancestry or our current opinions. Uh, it's in a truly an ecumenical cathedral, and I hope that everybody takes some time to reacquaint themselves with. Uh, this majestic place. So Dean, I think this has been an extraordinary conversation. So enlightening. Um, of course, I highly, highly recommend everyone to go out and get themselves a copy of your fine book. Um, it's available uh, you know, at all your reputable booksellers. It's on Amazon. It's at uh, Barnes and Noble. It's at your local library. Uh, be sure to sell uh, disseminate it to some friends and family, uh, you know, as the holidays approach, I think it's a fine read for any time of the year, but especially perhaps then when you're cramped up inside in the cold and you're thinking about a warm California day, or you're thinking about John Muir out in the, the, the snowy uh, mm. <laughs> passes of, of the mountainous terrain. You ended with that last question beautifully. Are there any other comments with which you'd like to leave us today? Any ideas or opinions, anything at all? Well, you know, I, I think the the um, Muir also foresaw that, you know, um, he may have accomplished a, a lot for nature, but he knew that it was a continuing struggle, that we would always have this struggle, partly because of the physical need to, to use nature and the spiritual need. And he understood both. And he, he, he um, recognized and gave each its due. Um, um, but he said this, this is, um, you know, kind of, uh, ultimately a fight between good and evil. You cannot, you cannot cut out either side of those, of that equation. And I think we are right in the, in the crux of that matter today. And so I'm, I'm hoping that the, the book and reading Muir, um, will, will inspire people to get involved. You know, it, 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 every little act that we take in our own lives and in, in our communal lives, um, is critical. Yeah, uh, I couldn't say better myself. And as I said, your book was something of a springboard for me to delve more deeply into the works of, of Muir, which has been endlessly um, gratifying. And to you, speaking of endless gratification and gratitude, I'm infinitely grateful for you uh, for having joined me today and having bestowed upon me and all of our listeners so much good information, for having put out all your excellent works um, with which you should be filling your Amazon cards as we speak. Um, so Dean, thank you again. You've been so generous with your time, um, so thoughtful in your responses. Hopefully the questions I posed were provocative enough to inspire some thoughtful responses. That's always my goal here to kind of ask a couple of different questions that you might not normally receive and you handle them all eloquently and, and masterfully. And I think all to our benefit. So again, I encourage everybody to pick up a copy of Dean's latest work, to check out his social media pages, to check out his personal website, uh, maybe perhaps some of the productions 
uh, forthcoming uh, from your company, um, the, the Gum Street production company of which you're a founder and in which you're a partner. Um, and with that, I'm going to bid the all farewell. Uh, of course, I am your humble host, Daniel Finneran. Please consider liking this episode, uh, subscribing to this channel, sharing it with friends, and continuing with me to enjoy these great conversations. Thank you. <laughs>